Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. When you hear the word Bible, what do you think? What do you think? It's different for everyone. Maybe when you hear that word, you are thinking of a very large book, quite intimidating, full of names and ideas, confusing to you. Maybe when you think of the word Bible, you are imagining a King James-only fundamentalist swinging his Bible and raging against all that's wrong in the world. Or maybe when you think of Bible, you think of a book you know you should be reading more, but you feel guilty because you're not. Let me tell you what Jesus thought about your Bible. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by your Bible, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Where do you find the words that proceed from the mouth of God? It's your Bible. And Jesus viewed your Bible as more important than food. It's a rather basic necessity, food is. Jesus considered God's Word, your Bible, more necessary and more basic to human flourishing than food. And he knew what he was talking about because he made that statement, quoting the Old Testament, 40 days after he was fasting. He was literally starving, and still he could say, I'd rather have a Bible. Let me tell you what Jesus' forefather, according to the flesh, King David, subject of 1 Samuel, said about your Bible. The law of God's mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. If you went home today and in your old dusty basement saw a chest, which you had never seen there before, and unearthed it and opened it, and there were thousands of gold and silver pieces, your life would be different. (laughs) Your budget would be different. But you know what would be better than finding a chest with that much money in it? Having a Bible. We do all know people who claim a deep allegiance to the scriptures and yet through a lack of love or tact or both make it seem like really loving your Bible is an unpleasant, unsavory thing. It turns you into a robot or an animal or something in between. But that's a problem with certain people and you really have to distance in your own mind a deep love for scripture with the expressions of some who claim a deep love for Scripture. You have to separate those. You have to love the Scriptures. Jesus couldn't love the Scriptures more, more basic than food. David, better than thousands of pieces of gold and silver. How else could Scripture be so clear to you to tell you, Scripture's important. Love the Scriptures. You have to love it. You have to see Scripture as if there were a golden coin hidden under every single word in your Bible. I sometimes do sense in people this fear that if we exaggerate how important the scriptures are and really immerse ourselves in learning them and knowing them and speaking them and studying them, then we'll spend so much time doing that that we won't actually live the Bible out. So sometimes there can be this sense of attention between those who really know doctrine and those who live their doctrine out. 
I understand that fear, but let me just put it this way. If I were this moment to ask, who here knows the Bible too well? <laughs> who would raise their hand? <laughs> Don't do it. Who would have the audacity to raise their hand? It's not a problem with knowing or loving or being committed to Scripture too much. Again, it's a lifestyle issue. It's not one or the other. It's both. The Bible for us as Christians, we don't worship it. But without it, we don't worship. We need the Scriptures. It's our access to God's very voice, His words to us, and we are blind without it. So hear this word, read this word. May it be that we wake up in the morning with scripture on our mind. We go to sleep with the same running through our brains. When you talk with others, talk about this word. When you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, talk about scripture. And commit yourself, even before you hear God's word, that you will do what it tells you to do. That's a commitment you have to make before you hear what it tells you to do. This is the highest and purest form of worship, hearing God's word, receiving it, and acting upon it. And this is what God's helping us to do today in this well-known text in 1 Samuel chapter 3. This is the text where God calls Samuel. We've been following the life of young Samuel. He's still just a boy. He lives in Shiloh, the center of worship in Israel at the time. Eli is the main priest. His sons are the ones functioning as priests because Eli is old and losing his sight. But Eli and his sons are bad. They're evil. And what we're seeing in 1 Samuel is that they are, Eli's house as the priests are passing away. They're growing dim. They're being extinguished. But there remains a light in Israel. And it's Samuel who's going to be a prophet, who is going to receive God's word. So may God grant us to receive his word the way that Samuel does in this text. Let's look at 1 Samuel 3, 1 through 10. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I didn't call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I didn't call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel didn't yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, 
Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. God spoke to Samuel with an audible voice, with words that could actually be heard. And he had a specific message for Samuel, one that he doesn't exactly have for you. We're going to see that message next week. It's one of judgment on Eli's house. When you go home today and then you're falling asleep tonight, God is not going to come and stand in your room and shout your name to wake you up and tell you a message in the same way that he spoke to Samuel. It's not that God can't do that. Certainly he could do that. It's that in this period of history in which we live, after Christ's first coming and waiting for his second, in this period of history, it's a lot like this text. There's no frequent vision. And yet, your situation is not that far removed from Samuel's. Because you still have God's call, God's very words. In a sense, in a more certain way than Samuel did. He had them audibly. But God has given you his very words written down in the Bible. The Old and the New Testament of the Scriptures. Those are God's call to you. They are a call to you. They're not just there for your historical interest. They are appealing to you. It is God appealing to you with his very words. And the only difference is you're not hearing them. You're reading them. But that's the only difference. It is still God calling to people, calling to you in this world. For that reason, a text like this one becomes very instructive for us. Because although we're not Samuel, and no, we are not a prophet, and we do not hear God's audible call, at the same time, this text tells us things about God's word generally. What do we learn about how God speaks about his call first? And secondly, it tells us in Samuel, how should we receive God's word? As we come to Scripture, as we come to a sermon about Scripture, as you approach your quiet time, how does God want you to have, what attitude does God want you to have toward His Word? So those are the two headings that we're going to look at as we look at these ten verses. The first hand, the call itself, God's Word. And secondly, the response, the example of it in Samuel. So let's look at the call itself. What does this passage teach us about God's word? Things that are true for all time. And really the first thing it teaches us is that God's word is his prerogative. His prerogative. What God chooses to speak and to reveal to us, it's his decision. It's not your decision. You don't get to change it. You don't get to be like Benjamin Franklin, someone who comes to the scriptures with a small precision knife and cuts out what you don't like. That's that's not your decision. We have the 66 books of scripture. They've come to us at God's prerogative. You didn't ask for them. You need them, but you didn't ask for them. God ensured that this book would be available in this time and place for you, apart from you. 
Because God's revelation is always that way. It always comes at his prerogative. Nobody can force God. Where are you going to go? Are you going to climb a high mountain and force him to talk to you? It's God's prerogative when he speaks and how he speaks and what he chooses to reveal and what he chooses not to reveal. The things hidden that belong to the Lord, that's his choice as well. Look at this even in the latter half of verse 1 here. This is just setting for this scene, but notice, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. We've said before that what's happening here took place toward the end of the book of Judges. If you know that book, Israel was spiraling downward in patterns of greater and greater disobedience against God, and God brought them greater and greater judgments. And so when we come to this text and find that there was no regular prophecy and no frequent vision, it could be a judgment of God against the nation that that was so. Proverbs 29.18 reads, where there's no prophetic vision, that's here, the people cast off restraint. And certainly that's what Hophni and Phinehas did. They cast off restraint. So maybe this was a judgment. That's why God wasn't revealing himself clearly and regularly. But also it could have just been according to some hidden purpose of God. Think about the 300 years that preceded this, that preceded Christmas time, that came before Jesus was born on earth. Those 300 years, there was no prophetic voice at all. After Malachi, done. For three three centuries of no voice, and you might think that was some judgment of God against the people, but that's not clear. It seems instead that it was just part of God's hidden purpose, that there would be a great silence before he spoke most loudly in the birth of Jesus. So maybe here there was no frequent vision and no prophetic voice because of some hidden purpose of God. What is clear, no matter what God's reasoning in this setting, is that God made the decision at that time that there would not be a lot of prophetic revelation. God chooses what to say and when to say it, and there's nothing anyone can do about that. We can't cajole him, we can't make him say anything different than what he said, and this is an important attitude for us as we think about the scriptures. There are in there 66 books. You may have five that are your favorite. John, the gospel, the gospel of John, and Romans, and so forth. You may have five that are your favorite, but your Bible's not made up of five books. (laughs) Your Bible is 66, not 65, but 66 books. Who made that decision? The early church recognized that there were 66 inspired books, but they didn't make that decision. That was a decision made by God. When you are reading through the scriptures and you come upon the doubled description of the tabernacle in Exodus, that in detail, the length and width of everything in the tabernacle is described not once but twice, you probably wouldn't make that decision to have that in Exodus. It's not the most engaging reading if you don't know what you're looking at. But it's just as important as anything else because God chose that that would be in Exodus. When you go to Leviticus and there are laws that seem foreign to you about clean and unclean and it makes no sense to you. And there's all these laws for chapter after chapter and a whole holiness code that was under the old covenant and therefore doesn't have direct application today. You may not have chosen to put that in God's revelation to man. 
But God did choose to put that. The genealogies that you find in Scripture that you skim through. I know you do. Stop doing that. You skim through those genealogies. God chose to put those in there. And in Numbers, when you get to Joshua and you find descriptions of the borders of the tribes, you may not have chosen to put that in Scripture. But God did. And that's the way revelation works. It's God's prerogative. It's his choice what he reveals. You have many questions you wish God would reveal to you. The death of a loved one, why did that happen? It's not in your Bible. But you don't get the choice of putting it in there. There are things which God doesn't put in the scripture you wish he would, but you're not God. There are things he does put in the scripture maybe you wish he wouldn't, but you're not God. It's God's prerogative what he reveals. It was in 1973 that the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, that is the kind of textbook, the DSM, the textbook used by psychologists and psychiatrists, it was in 1973 that homosexuality was removed as a mental disorder. It was in there before that. It was removed. And of course, things have changed culturally quite a lot. So for us to have a textbook, which is the scriptures, which just has continued to say that homosexuality is wrong, Whereas the culture has changed on that position, that's rather inconvenient for us. And I'm sure you feel some of that cultural pressure, even as I speak this. Say, oh, just there's a cultural pressure if you don't agree with homosexuality as a right and noble lifestyle. But see, you don't get to choose what you put in the Bible and take out of the Bible. You just come to the Bible and there it is. Who made that choice? God made that choice. Can't nix anything out of it. Consider, for example, just how inconvenient God's word was to Samuel in our text. If you look at verse 3. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. And this lamp that's described here, it could have been the menorah, that's the candlestick. But it seems like it was actually maybe a separate lamp that they had in the tabernacle. Just a small lamp, probably. And they kept it lit all night long because God does not slumber or sleep. So maybe that's the reasoning. Seems fitting to keep a light on. So they always keep a light on. Maybe Samuel staying in the tabernacle itself, outside of the curtain that leads to the holy, holiest place where the ark was, where God specially dwelt. Maybe Samuel staying there was to tend to the lamp. At the very least, it was so Samuel would be ready to serve in some way. So he's staying in there, and that lamp is on. But it says that this, this lamp, it was not yet extinguished. It had not yet gone out. They would put out the lamp when the sun rose. So what this tells us is that everything we're reading about here happens before sunrise. Before sunrise, early in the morning, Samuel has to get up out of bed four times. Some of you have newborns. Many of you have had newborns. Others of you have dogs and so forth. But you know that to get out of a dead sleep four times consecutively in one morning before sunrise, it's inconvenient, to say the least. It's inconvenient. God's word comes to Samuel at a rather inconvenient time. But the reason it can come to him at a time that Samuel would not have chosen is because God chose it. Because again, God's call, God's word is God's prerogative. 
The second thing we do learn in this text about God's word is that his word comes to us by human means. You can see in our text that God seems to have varied exactly what he said to Samuel each time he called him. So that's why in verse 4 it simply says the Lord called Samuel. When you get to the second occurrence in verse 6, it seems to tell us what he actually said. Samuel. Then when you get to the fourth call actually in verse 10, the final one, it's Samuel, Samuel, repeated, which God often does when he wants to get someone's attention. We remember the call, Abraham, Abraham, when Abraham was about to kill his son on Mount Moriah to get his attention. His name is repeated twice. The same happens to Moses from the burning bush. Moses, Moses, to get his attention. And here God is calling out to Samuel, twice repeated here, Samuel, Samuel. So although his call may have differed, did he say it one time, two times, what exactly was said? Here's the one thing that's clear every single time. The call of God, his word to Samuel, came as a human voice. In fact, as a male human voice. And how do we know that? Because how did Samuel respond each time that God called to him? Look at verses 4 and 5 for the first instance. Then the Lord called Samuel. He said, Samuel said, here I am. And he gets up and he ran to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. And twice more in 6 and 8. Here I am, for you called me. And then when that confusion is explained in verse 7, it's now Samuel didn't yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Meaning later Samuel was going to become a great prophet. He would have almost conversation with the Lord, praying to the Lord, hearing from the Lord, but that hadn't happened yet. This is the very beginning. This is his origin story. And so when he hears this voice saying, Samuel, or Samuel, Samuel, It's clearly a human voice, a male human voice that the boy Samuel would confuse with Eli's equally human voice. God is using a human voice in human language to communicate to Samuel. In fact, it's kind of amazing because if you go to verse 10, the last time God calls to him, it says, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times. And you know, God is spirit. God the Father is spirit. He doesn't come and stand anywhere. But we know as well that God can take on, manifest himself in human form, as he often does even in the Old Testament. Was that a pre-incarnate Christ? Maybe. I leave that to you and your own study of Scripture to find out. But here's God who wants to communicate with man in the Old Testament. He takes on human form of some kind, and he speaks in human words with a human voice. And that's basically always how God communicates. That's true for us today as well. Really, the point is God accommodates himself to us. We are humans. For us to understand God's revelation, we need it in a human voice, in human words. And that is exactly what you have in the scriptures. This is the reason that some people object to your Bible and say it cannot be true because it was written by people. But that's how God always communicates, through people. It's true that there are 66 books and they are written from everyone from Moses to Paul to those close associates of Jesus, his disciples to Malachi, minor prophets, shepherds, so many people, people, human people, contributed with human words. Their own personalities are preserved in the scriptures. You can see that. 
But it's still God's call. It's still God speaking to us. Just like his call to Samuel, although it was given in a human voice, is clearly God's call to him, God's word to him. So this is what we learn of the word of God in this text. It comes to us by God's prerogative, and it comes to us by a human voice. In our case, a human pen written in the scriptures. But that moves us now from what we learn of the call to what our response to that call or to God's word ought to be. And we see this in Samuel. And he provides for us a better example of a holy response to God's word than we find almost anywhere else in scripture. Notice this first of all. If you want to receive God's word well, like Samuel, notice that Samuel received God's word while he was serving God. The verse, verse. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. That is the third time we are told that Samuel ministered to or ministered before the Lord. And it's while he's ministering or serving the Lord that God reveals his word to you, to him. In your own case, You may think of the Bible as a book that has many parts of it still very dark and obscure to you. You probably will agree with the assessment of Peter, who said of Paul's writings, there are many things in them that are hard to understand. (laughs) You may feel that way about the Bible. You've come across baptisms for the dead and other confusing texts you've looked at Revelation, and there are still parts of Scripture that are just dark to you. What are you going to do? Samuel received God's word and understood God's word while and not before he was serving the Lord. And I think there's a principle to be found there. If you want to know God's word better, don't wait and study God's word a bunch till you feel like you've got a great grasp on it and then go and live the Christian life. You will not learn God's word well there. Instead, Leave here today and put into practice what you know from God's word. Do what he's already made clear to you. Husbands, love your wife. Wives, submit your husbands. Children, obey your parents. You find what's clear. Now go do that. And as you do that, scripture will become more and more clear to you. The study of scripture always happens best for those who are in the trenches trying to live it out. That's a little bit embarrassing because... If you don't have it mastered, everything scripture teaches about marriage and about friendships and about work, if you don't have it mastered and then you go try to do it, you're going to do some of it wrong. You're going to do some things you think the Bible's teaching and then some other old wise believer will say, that's not actually what that means. And then you're going to be embarrassed and backpedal and say, I'm not going to do that anymore. That was wrong. And that can have a paralyzing, freezing effect where you feel like I never want to be wrong again when I'm living out the Christian life. And therefore, I'm going to make sure I absolutely and infallibly understand all biblical principles on marriage before I try to love my wife. (laughs) See how that works. It's not going to work. You learn as you go. There's a sense in which we see that in Samuel. Samuel was already ministering before he knew the word of the Lord, before he was converted to the Lord. He was in the right context to receive God's word. And you ought to put yourself in that right context, which is be a doer of the word. Be doing. If you want to receive God's word well, don't stop doing. Be doing. Read God's word. Try. Do. Succeed. Fail. 
Go back to the book, read, study, go do some more, refine your process, back to the book. It's not that different from any job you may work. You have the textbooks, you have the college education, but wow, when you get on the work site, it's a whole different story. So you go back to the book, and then you go back to the work site, then you ask people. It's like that. You learn best as you're doing. That's what we find here. So if you want to receive God's word well, be doing. Secondly, if you want to receive God's word well, be eager. That's one of the hallmarks of this text when we look at Samuel. Of the three times that Samuel hears God's word and goes to Eli, the second two times here in verses 6 and 8, notice they just say, he arose and went. Now mind you, this was still when Samuel thought this was Eli's voice. He didn't know it was God's voice. But nonetheless, he is a boy. He wakes up from a dead sleep and he arose. That's not easy. When your alarm went off this morning, <laughs> did you, you just arose straight up. That's hard. He arose, middle of the night, he went. But I think his eagerness is actually clearest in the first instance in verse 5, which tells us he ran to Eli. Dead sleep, wake up, up, run. <laughs> four times, four times. So what we find in Samuel is an eagerness. It's an eagerness. Even before he quite understands this is God's word coming to him, you see an eagerness on his part. If he does this for Eli, how much more for God? This is really what we ought to all commit ourselves to when it comes to God's word. This is the attitude. Whatever God's word tells us, rise, run. Rise, run. Yes, you hear? Okay, rise, Run. So husbands, Ephesians 5, love your wives as Christ loved the church. There it is. That's God's word to you. If you're a husband, there it is. Now what are you going to do with that? Well, there's a game this afternoon, so I'm going to do that first, and then I'm going to get around to it. I got to figure out what love means. I've been struggling because I've been trying to love my wife, but then she doesn't feel loved. So I'm trying to figure out, am I loving her right? So I'm going to put it on a list. I'm probably going to get around. I got to do some stuff. I'm probably going to get around to that. And then I will, I'm going to try to do better. I'm not doing so bad, but I'll try to rise, run. There's an, there's an eagerness about receiving God's word. When you hear husbands love your wives, there ought to be in us husbands an enthusiasm, an energy. And I know it's not the normal male way we want to sit and wait and chill. There's no chilling. In the Christian life, you get up and you go. You say, I don't even know how to start. Just go, go, go. And the amazing thing here with Samuel is he gets up, he goes. He's not right about the situation. Notice, he's ignorant. He's ignorant. He doesn't even know it's God calling him. Finally, it's Eli who realizes, oh, it's God calling you. So this is what you should say. There's a mid-course correction here. But it comes after Samuel has shown this eagerness. Up, go, up, go, up, go. He's doing it wrong. So God corrects him, uses Eli, corrects him. Oh, okay. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And I do think that is how the Christian life works. You're a husband. The key thing right now, before you have everything mastered and how to perfectly love your wife, is do something. Don't just keep doing what you've been doing that's not working. 
do something. There's something to just the eagerness that we see in Samuel in response to God's word. There's something to just the eagerness of try something. I know it's embarrassing because you'll fail and your wife will see you and others will see you. You kind of have to put that aside. Say, just try something. There's something beautiful when you find a, a new believer who's just come to Christ and they're just learning the basics. They're still memorizing the order of the books and Old and New Testament, but you see them trying so much stuff, sometimes doing wrong, but you know there's something so right even when they do it wrong because where the heart's at, there's an eagerness there to receive God's word and do it. Part of our this eagerness, it is confusing with us as men to go back for just a moment to husbands love your wives as an example. Because if the command was husbands go overseas and be shot at for your wives, we would all do it. Nobody would object. There's a sort of manliness that says, yes, we will go and live in icy bunkers and lose toes to frostbite while we're being shot at for our wives. But the hard thing is when that's not the case and you're just here and it's love your wife here on a Sunday afternoon by just talking to her. And that's where it gets tough. <laughs> Up, go, rise, run, do something. Love your wife better. Find out how she feels loved. Love her that way. Now, so we're not just picking on one set of people. You know that Ephesians 5 also says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That's the command. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And we've had enough decades of feminist influence that that's waned in popularity. Just like our views on homosexuality are now very outdated, so is that view right there. Can't remove it. There it is. It's right, but it's changed culturally. And so, you know, when you're at a wedding and they give the traditional vows and the wife promises to cherish, to love, and to obey her husband, that half of the people squirm in their seats. You can't say that in this day and age. It's common to think, I'll submit to him and respect him when he deserves respect. Is that what God's word says? Wives, submit to your husbands as long as he deserves it. <laughs> no. You submit to and you respect your husband whether he deserves it or not. Because it's a command from God. That's why. That's the reason. I'll submit to my husband's leadership as long as he leads me exactly how I would lead me if I were him. <laughs> That's... Sorry, that's not submitting. That's submitting to yourself. That's just doing what you want to do. But the call comes to wives. And I'm not naive in thinking that's an easy thing. It's not any easier than husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church and laid down his life. In fact, some days it's as hard as being in the icy ditches of the battle of the bold shot at, you know. But it's the command and you have to decide, am I going to put it off? Am I going to avoid it? It's uncomfy. It hasn't worked in the past. No. There's an eagerness in our receiving of God's word where we rise and we run. So I don't know how to submit perfectly as a wife. I'm just going to try to figure it out as I'm doing it. <laughs> try this. Is that right? Ask someone who's older and wise, am I doing that right? Okay, correct it a little bit. Do this. But the point is you've got to do something. can't just continue how things are. Now, if you're not married, single, maybe you're here and you've assessed a call to the mission field call to the mission field. But 
you're tempted because there's a lucrative career ahead of you. And you would give that up with a call to the mission field. But you're sensing, in this case, not even just scripture, but you're also sensing this internal call from God to go to the mission field. At least to assess that possibility if you're being called there. And what are you going to do with that? Oh, I hate that I have this feeling of a call. (laughs) I'll make for a miserable life. You know a better approach? Be eager about it. Rise, run. Is God calling me to it? At least figure that out. Go ask some godly people. Get some counsel from elders. Rise, run. There's an eagerness in receiving God's word that ought to characterize all of us. It's the same that we find in our Savior Jesus Christ when the Father's will is for Jesus to go to Jerusalem and die a terrible death. Jesus sets his face like flint to Jerusalem. And it's a painful death that awaits him. But for joy, the joy set before him, he endured the cross. In other words, with eagerness, face like flint. No one could turn him aside. And when Paul, years later, went toward Jerusalem for what he considered to be a similar fate, you'll die there, or at least be arrested. He said, why are you all crying and breaking my heart? I'm determined. I'm going there. I don't count my life as any value to me. I'm going there. It's an eagerness about doing God's word. We see that in Samuel in this text. Lastly, if you want to receive God's word well, be doing, be eager, but maybe most importantly of all, be humble. Although verse 2 says that Eli's eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, Eli could see at least enough to recognize what was happening. So you see in verse 8, Then Eli perceived, so his physical eyes aren't working, but he did perceive that the Lord was calling the boy. So this half good, half bad priest gives this counsel, good counsel, by the way, very good counsel, where he says in verse 9, go lie down and if he calls you, you shall say, speak Lord for your servant hears. And then if you look at verse 10, that's what Samuel does. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears. There is Samuel at that pre-dawn hour in a dark room lit only by that single light flickering, standing before God Almighty as God speaks to him, Samuel, Samuel. And here is his reply, and it's a summary of this whole sermon. It's a summary of if you want to respond to God's word well, this is it. Remember this. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. A servant does what he hears. That's Samuel's point. I'm your servant. So if you tell me something, I don't know what you're going to tell me, God. But if you're going to tell it to me, I'm going to hear it. I'm your servant, and I'm going to do it. Whatever it is, blink check, I will do it. There's a humility here in Samuel. He doesn't say, well, I'll assess it when God tells me what he's going to tell me. I'll assess it and figure out if I agree with it, and then maybe I'll do it if it's not too hard. But instead, there's a humility that says, I'm a servant, and servants just do what they're told, so God tell me. My prayer for us as a church, we are Faith Bible Church, is that more and more this would be true of us, this immediate responsiveness, this pre-commitment really to the scriptures. If we find God telling us something, 
If you're in your quiet time and God communicates to you through the scriptures and plants it on your heart there and you see it, that you would rise and run, that you would have the humility to say, I'm just a servant. I don't even maybe agree with it right now. Maybe that's where I'm at. Where I'm coming from, I don't know if I agree. But if scripture says it, then I will do it. What other option do I have? I'm a servant of God. May that be our attitude. May that be our heart toward the word of God. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening.